Hello everyone, thanks for listening and welcome to the BizPod podcast. Um, I'm really excited about today's episode because I have one of my mentors, if you will, uh, someone who I, well, I have Sylvia Hayward Panella. Yes, yeah, that's correct. I, I say so she, I've known you a long time, I should know your name. But I'm <laughs> yes, yes you should. <laughs> um, Sylvia, thanks for coming on. Um, my pleasure. I uh, first met Sylvia, well, when was it? A long time ago, two Yeah, a few years ago. I don't, eight I, I, or nine I dread or to think ten. about how long it was. Actually, no, probably 2011, I think it was. Right. So I was managing the youth services here at Cedar, um, and I remember at the time I, was, I had what I thought was a fairly good understanding of autism, and I decided I needed to just refresh that and, you know, always, always keep learning. So I ended up on one of your courses that you were running at the yeah. Devon Autism Centre. Yes, yeah. in a little room. Yes, yes. With, I think, probably six people at yeah. the time. Not, not met very many, but... That yes. worked out quite well for me, though, because I got to pester you in every break. Yes. I remember, I remember that specifically. Like, right, when is there a gap when no one's talking to Sylvia? <laughs> I need to talk to her now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think I, the thing I remembered the most from that training was just how different the understanding was of autism how much more in depth it was how much more current it was with the research that had come out and how significantly that changed some of the ideas that I had around autism and how to work with it and mm. how to support people with autism and you know it, it genuinely one of the reasons I'm so excited to get you on here is because it was something that I think certainly changed my career and as a result changed my life really and what I did and um, Sylvia at the time was an RDI practitioner which stands for relationship development intervention I think we'll on later podcasts we'll probably talk a bit more about what that is um, but then she then inspired me to go away and do the same qualification and that was part of setting up the BizNet project which is why we're here now uh, Sylvia I think it'd be good to start with maybe telling everyone a little bit about your background because mm. by this stage about the fourth episode they're probably sick of the sound of my voice they've heard enough from me <laughs> um so yeah so how did you get into this type of work what was your sort yeah of career? well i i got into the field of autism just by accident uh-huh. um i did my psychology degree in spain and uh, i was actually geared up for um language impairments so um, I was uh, a research assistant in one of the psycholinguistic departments there and I was about to start my PhD but then you know um, gosh almost well more than 20 years ago that's how, how old I am and um, <laughs> you don't have to mention that no they no we, we probably can edit that time but, <laughs> but um, yes I, I came to the UK with the idea of just improving my English so then I could, I could go into the a PhD program and uh, attend conferences and, and not feeling like um, I don't know what they're talking about. And um, one thing led to another and you know 17 years later I'm still here and um, I did apply for a job that I was underqualified by when I decided to remain in the UK. and. Um, and I was really, really lucky that the um, the lady who was taking care of all the CVs and applications 
maybe saw some potential and pass on my application into the um, educational, the principal educational psychology mm. it's in um, one of the councils and uh, back in, in Berkshire and he gave me a call and offered me a job that he didn't have. <laughs> so he <laughs> kind of created the job. And um, the job was to coordinate a research project that they were about to undertake at the time uh, looking with the University of Southampton and it was an ABA based uh, applied behavioral analysis and and that was the beginning of my autism career and and development and mm -hmm. you know I just stuck to it ever since and so you you started off using the the sort of applied behavior analysis yeah. approach mm. um, which if, if people aren't familiar with it's it's um, one of the sort of most well-known approaches yeah um, based on a lot of reinforcement type techniques yeah so. yeah uh, it, it is very behavioral based on kind of reward and mm -hmm. consequences you know back in the day there was just some level of punishment that i'm, I'm sure it is, is not happening um at, right now and 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 the intervention aba has evolved mm -hmm. massively since um, the first early days. But um, yeah, that's how I started. I trained uh, as an ABA tutor and provided the, the, the classic um, way of delivering ABA services and for early intervention and research at, at the time kind of showed that very intense many hours a day like 40 hours a week something like that um six to eight hours a day mm. was the optimum to develop certain skills in in children with autism mm -hmm. um so i was trained on that and i was delivering monday to friday uh aba kind of intervention to three lovely lovely kids <laughs> but that's how that's how i I started. Um, and when did yeah. you then shift into the... When did you come across RDI as a process? That was... Well, not until later on. And it kind of fills into, you know, the work that I'm doing now and the mm. research that I'm doing that now. Because back then, and that was 2001, when mm -hmm. I started with this project, and it lasted for three years, this research. And... Um, and one of the strong emphases was on eye contact, just to teach the child eye contact. And these were um, preschool, well, not nursery kids. There, there were like three, four, so kids, pre preschool um, kids. And um, our, our council provided three nonverbal kids, so just lower end of, of the spectrum. And um, and there was a very strong emphasis on eye contact. And I started, you know, considering I was new within the field of autism, I didn't know much. Um, and all I knew in terms of intervention was ABA at the time. But the, at the time, he started to raise questions about the whole idea of eye contact for me. Mm -hmm. Because it was a very behavioral, but, 
way of, of kind of promoting, increasing, developing eye contact. So every time the child looked at me, then I would give the child a reinforcement, usually food. Yeah. Um, Which is how, that's kind of how the ABA yeah, system kind of Just works. use, yeah, food as a way of reinforcing a skill. But I started to wonder, how does the child that I'm reinforcing that eye contact, you know, because, you know, looking is such a natural thing. Mm. Uh, and also, it's not only about the behavior aspect of looking at someone, but you need to have some level of understanding, even as, as an early age, of when to provide that eye contact and, 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 and the functionality of that. Mm. And I, I kind of debated why and how, how is this working? Because it seemed to me reinforcing that cause effect rather than and promoting and supporting the meaning of eye contact. Mm. So, you know, I started to question you know, a lot of the procedures that ABA used in, in children with autism, it felt to me very artificial mm. and it, it kind of lacked, lacked the, that human connection that, you know, people have, mm. that kind of sharing of experience. And I think that, that you know, after the project ended, um, it kind of I started to to wrestle with that idea, and um, then I went on to do a, a postgraduate in in Asperger's with with Sheffield Hallam, and um, and then I had a friend who was within the field and who had been a ABA tutor for for many many years, and um, and he and we often get got together and talk about you know, autism and ABA. And he had a family who had just started RDI. Okay. And I didn't know anything about RDI at the time. And um, he lent me one of the first books that um, Dr. Goodstein, the creator of RDI, had written, which is called Solving the Relationship Puzzle. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes sense to me that that book mm. to you know everything that I was questioning everything that it didn't feel right but I couldn't really um, articulate it I couldn't make meaning of it he provide all that framework all that understanding mm. and then it was a question of I have to do the training I, mm. I have to and the the one of the keyest aspects with RDI is that it was the first time that he mentioned social referencing yes, yes. as opposed to, to eye, contact. eye contact. And I've never heard of the term at the time and it kind of made sense to me. Definitely. I think that's such an important point. The, the, the the kind of falseness of teaching someone that eye contact is something you get rewarded for yeah. I extrinsically, you know, or if you, I'll give you something if you give me eye contact. Or mm. sometimes we say to kids things like, um, 
you give people eye contact to show that you're listening or to be polite, but that's not why we give eye contact, is it? We, no. we give eye contact for information. Yeah. Uh, and well, I'm, for many, for many different well, things. Well, for lots of individual yeah. research is mm. now yeah. into, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. But, but equally, it is a question of, you know, even I remember back in the day with ABA that we would give that instruction of look at me, mm-hmm. but, you know, even that instruction is so full of ambiguity mm-hmm. because, okay, so where do I need to look and how long for? Um, and, and the reality is that neurotypical children do not look for very long, mm. you know. And, and they also probably don't look just at eyes, you know, it's a whole face yeah. gaze, isn't it? You know, yeah. you're taking all the information of the face, it's not really eye contact. If you told someone, um, with autism who was a particularly literal thinker to give eye contact they could take that quite rigidly and, yeah. and just be looking in your in your eyes which yeah. don't give you that much information on their own no and then you know where they where do you draw the line between you know looking and staring for instance yeah you know <laughs> how it, long it, do you look yeah, for yeah it, it, that the dimension of the concept of looking you know to me there is a difference between, you know, um, looking and seeing, you know, psychologically. Yeah. There is a completely different meaning. And, and I'm interested in when children start realizing that looking means seeing mm. and, and kind of understanding and making meaning. Um, and I think that's what behavioural approaches lack of. Yeah. Bring in something that is kind of very instinctive and behavioural into something that becomes meaningful. Mm. Because there are research done on social referencing in dogs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, animals do social reference as well. <laughs> But, you know, kind of from a brain point of view, one of the differences between humans and and animals is that we have that ability to go beyond Mm -hmm. the behavior into a a making meaning, uh, you know, state of mind. And also, I think, I mean, you, you, I'm sure we'll come, we'll maybe come on to this later, but you sent me a paper a while back the empathy and balance hypothesis yeah. which I must have reread about 10 times that I reference in it in training all the time because I just think it's such an important idea and a piece of research that could change the way a lot of people work yeah and that would suggest that and it's, it kind of ties in with all the stuff that we've been told by people on the spectrum for quite a few years now that actually eye contact's often quite painful and uncomfortable for them. Mm-hmm. So if you're then demanding it for a reward or perhaps a punishment or a negative input, if they don't give it, you know, what, what's that doing to that person? You Absolutely. Know? I, I think it is pointless to demand something that it kind of lacks meaning. I mean, any behaviours that we conduct ourselves throughout the day, they hold some level of meaning. Most of that meaning is unconscious and mm-hmm. we don't bring it to the consciousness and it's, out, it's automatic. But if we were to stop and reflect on it, we will come up with that meaning and that rationale as to why. Um, 
So we're teaching the what, not the why, if exactly. we just teach the eye contact. Yeah, but it kind of is, is pointless, to mm. be honest. And, and like you said, it just conflicts with sensory processing difficulties, attentional difficulties, and, and, and also this ability to grab things as a whole. Mm. You know, it, and that's not to mean that we can't create meaning out of social looking but to me that's that's the distinction if you talk about eye contact you're talking about something completely different i do prefer to focus on social looking mm -hmm. so that's that's come back to your kind of story then because yeah. we're getting towards the social looking thing that you're doing now and the research you're doing now so you you, you practiced rdi yeah and you got you got trained up in that and became an rdi practitioner amongst other things yeah and how long were you doing that for that was five years five i was years. a um an rdi consultant yeah. yes and then you just when did you decide to go back and do get back into research well um i finished my master's in autism by Sheffield Hallam, you know, now I'm just kind of part of, of, of that institution. Um, at the same time as I was finishing my RDI, so I did that almost in parallel at one point. And um, my master's was in autism, uh, Sheffield Hallam ran a, a very good course on that. So I, I finished that and become a, an RDA consultant and when I finished my masters somehow it felt natural to go on to mm -hmm. research a PhD. Now my um, master's dis dissertation was about social referencing okay. so it kind of it has been something that since my days on um, ABA kind of um, fields is always that something that's intrigued me mm -hmm. to the point that you know became the theme I wanted to focus on so I did research uh, with parents and and you know taking on parents narratives of when and how social referencing appeared in, in autism and there is research done very extensively on social referencing and joint attention because it is believed that social referencing is part of a bigger paradigm, which is the joint attention, which is the ability of any child to direct and to um, coordinate uh, their attention between an adult and an object. So for whoever that is not very um, kind of, um, doesn't know the term of, of joint attention if, if you think about reading a story to a child which many parents do mm. at night that would be kind of one of the activities mm -hmm. standard uh, um, to promote that joint attention because the child needs to have information about where the child is physically but also it coordinates that engagement with mum or dad mm and also to the ch to the book so the child is just shifting and coordinating the attention between the pictures of the book pointing perhaps mm -hmm. looking at mum and then mm, being aware of where he's in relation to to kind of that joint attention engagement i always remember from your training that i think the video you show with your son 
Mm. Um, yes. when you're reading the Gruffalo yeah. and uh, his his kind of joint attention with the story is almost getting in the way of your goal of reading the story yeah. to him because he's constantly <laughs> kind of mum do you think that the Gruffalo is angry because of the mouse or like do you think mum do you think this is that so he's kind of more interested in your point of view than he is on the story yeah. um, and that's where that kind of sharing of the opinion of the object is really yeah. important with joint attention, I guess. You know? Absolutely. And then, you know, from, a, from a, a, a looking point of view, you know, joint attention kind of starts developing around the first year, mm-hmm. just as slightly. Uh, well, you know, Peter Mundi is just one of the pioneers in joint attention kind of assumes that it's a bit earlier. But, you know, it kind of develops around the one year of age which is when children are starting to uh, to go beyond the what, mm-hmm. you know, into the why. So they children they start understanding the mental states of states of other people, especially adults, and and they have a better meaning of emotions mm-hmm. in in that sense. And that all kind of ties in with that joint attentional. And the idea that then they spend more time coordinated with an adult in social engagements than actually in, um, socially independent playing without kind of that diet. Mm. If, if you, uh, and, um, and going back to social referencing, because there needs to be that attention between you know what the child is doing and the adult and so on there's been this um, idea and rightly so in my opinion that social referencing kind of is is, is an element that happens within a joint attention mm-hmm. um, so going back to to kind of the 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 trajectory if that's um, the right word i did research on social referencing at the point at that point and um and i just wanted to carry on doing research in that in that field um and uh you know and and then i had conversations with my supervisors um and i'm really lucky that you know i've got you know, especially uh, Dr. Luke Bird, and who I believe is changing the the um, the idea of autism and uh, um, and the conception that we have. But um, we talked about you know. How is he doing that? Because I I'm interested. I've not heard that name before, Luke Bird. Luke Burden. Burden. Yeah. So what's he, what's he kind of changing? What? what? Well, I I think. You know, I I was thinking about it. Um, the other day and I think is how we interpret the whole idea of autism okay. and what we understand as to what is inclusive um, in, in the field of, of autism and he's very adamant that you know kind of autism you know well he, he, he brings that social model versus the clinical medical model that right. everybody else adopt, okay. i.e. the differences being whether you see autism as a disability, mm-hmm. which yeah, automatically this idea will bring um, 
assumptions of what they can or can't do yeah. and limitations, but, and, limitations yeah. and having and needing compensations because you yeah. know someone that is disabled will never be able yeah. <laughs> because it's so like the idea that someone with autism maybe struggles to visualize what's going to happen during the day so you give them a visual timetable for that yeah. day exactly um, and that's this kind of old sort of disability model yeah. of they won't be able to do this yeah. So therefore, we give them that. Yeah, and it's and it's the whole idea of impairments, for yeah. instance. So, so if you are impaired, mm-hmm. then automatically that equals that you won't be able to yeah. do whatever. Whereas he views autism as a disadvantage rather yeah. than a disability. Okay. And um, his his latest book is great to illustrate that. Um, in the sense that you know he talks about back in the day when being left-handed was a disadvantage Mm -hmm. and how at the time people saw that as a disability rather Mm. than a difference and then they tried to kind of reprogram the (laughs) the brain almost by stopping a left-handed person to use the, the the dominant hand and force them to to write with the right hand because that that was the norm mm. and he he views autism uh, as that in the sense that you know we live in a neurotypical world and almost what we're trying to to do is force individuals with autism to conform within within the diversity of neurotypical world yeah rather than seeing autism as a different neurotype mm-hmm. it's almost like a, a different group a bit like the, the there's a book neuro um neuro uh, neurotypes yeah. yeah yeah that idea that yeah. it's, it's just a it's a it's a different way yeah. of thinking that needs to be embraced and yeah, absolutely yeah but you know he the the way that i i kind of retell his ideas because they're completely his ideas but they resonate with me um is that um and now it's probably quite pertinent because we're coming up to christmas <laughs> but i think most people have watched the movie elf yeah and i think <laughs> that represents very clearly this idea about neurodiversity and neurotype right. in the sense that you know i think probably your listeners will will think well she's gone bonkers was talking about Elf. It wasn't something that I was expecting to be talking no. about, but I'm, I'm no, interested. No, but you can, yeah, yeah you, you can relate. Can, you can relate to that, is that at the beginning of the movie, you know, he is a human within a non-human environment. Yeah. So... He's surrounded by elves. Yeah. he stands out. So to me, Elf at that point, well, would be... Uh, person with autism within mm-hmm. the neurotype world okay. so the elves are able to kind of you know just check toys super fast mm-hmm. have those super abilities that the character will feral can't because mm-hmm. he is a human mm-hmm. he's not an elf and doesn't live in in the north pole also the size that he's at yeah. so so he's trying to out. yeah he's trying to fit in an environment that is a completely different type 
and and you know he gets i remember that that um part of the movie at the beginning and he's just trying to get the toys to wind up and he only does however numbers when all the other elves have done and i think that that can illustrate very well this idea of neurodiversity and how he's trying to conform into an environment that automatically creates barriers mm. maybe unconsciously but obviously he needs to see it into very tiny chairs because everybody else you know they use those tiny chairs <laughs> and he tries his best to do the best he can with his job but he's always falling behind because he doesn't have that ability but then he moves into new york and then he starts to be part of that diversity because he's within you know the human mm. environment and then he doesn't need to sit in tiny chairs he, he you know he, he's got all these different abilities but they're part within the norm mm. of being human and i think that illustrates very well this idea of you know if you put a group of you know kind of young people with autism together as a neurodiversity they get on well mm. very well you know they they might not socialize or converse as much as we do mm. but they, there's this implicit understanding amongst themselves of what they need and they they're, they're okay with that mm. i think the anxiety starts to appear when someone who has a different neurotype is expected to behave like I'm a different saying, yeah. yeah. Is it, am I right in thinking I don't want to go too far with this elf analogy, although it's fantastic. <laughs> but at the end of the film, doesn't he go back to Lapland, I guess it is, mm -hmm. and save the day in some way because yes. he's a big human. Yes. So exactly. there's also a nice little bit there about how, you know, his differences in that community actually can be when they're harnessed can be used as a strength and yeah. I think again that's that's a message that, that is starting to come through more and more and I know in America there's lots of um, employment agencies now that will look to identify the strengths of individuals on the spectrum and put them into those mm -hmm. types of jobs so yeah, it's... and I personally think it will come like we we have overcome this idea that being like left-handed is wrong yeah you know my daughter is left-handed and now she can buy left-handed scissors and and pens and all sorts so mm. we have overcome this idea of having to fitting and uh, kind of accommodated these difference mm. uh, and I think it is about perception and it is about acceptance you know when when Will Farrell comes back and saves the day there was then that understanding that actually I'm not an elf mm. I'm a human mm. you know and everybody understood that yeah. and then inclusion could happen because they understood you know what he needed and what he was what good at and was, yeah, yeah exactly and i i don't think we're there yet i think we're still trying to make people with autism be more social mm. or kind of you know just 
be more part of our neurotypical world? That's a really, it's an interesting point because I, I met with um, someone recently. I was, we, we did a conference event and I met with someone to, well, I, I was emailing someone actually who uh, is an adult who has had a late diagnosis of autism and we were asking her to, to sort of present at the conference and um, initially she she sort of was interested and then she did some research on me and, and, the, and the project and she heard that we did RDI and she came back and said I don't want to be associated with it and her reason for that was that she had got the message that RDI was about trying to change people and trying to kind of um, yeah essentially make them more social and that's interesting because you know it, I really connect with what you're saying because it's not I'd never saw RDI as that. I kind of see it as giving people the tools to deal with everything that's confusing around them if they want to. Yeah. And they still have they're still perfectly entitled to be themselves. They're still perfectly entitled to choose not to socialize. Mm. But unfortunately, well maybe not unfortunately, but the reality is that there are people bloody everywhere. We're yeah. very common. <laughs> We're all yeah. over the place. And those kind of social skills that 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 develop as a result from being able to use social referencing early on and, and learn those sort of skills and tools, they're probably going to be necessary at some point, even if it's just to lower anxiety. So, yeah, you know. I, yeah I, I do totally agree. I think it is about equipping people to make informed decisions, mm. you know, like we all do, yeah. you know, we times when we don't want to socialize and you know we become a bit more isolated for whatever reason and sometimes when we are more out there but we always have that choice and i think that's one of the struggles with anyone on the spectrum is that there's there's very little choice to be had mm. and and to me that's just unacceptable mm. I, I remember working once with a, a young girl that, you know, she, she pushed, I mean, she was quite inspirational because she put herself to be more social, even if, if that created a lot of anxiety and an hour or two of socializing will give her this just big headache and she had to withdraw for the whole of, for the rest of the day. Um, but she was very self-aware of if I don't do that, if I don't push myself, I will stay at home and become a hermit. Mm. Um, and I think it's just so nice to have that level of, of awareness. But equally, I think, well, it shouldn't be this hard, should it? Mm. You know, for someone to... I also think there's like a, there's a, one of the myths that I kind of... I, I certainly... I think I heard it early on in autism training or I certainly was given it, it as a I, I came to understand it um, as the idea that people with autism prefer their own company and that obviously is true for, for lots of people um, in general not just autism but then it, it kind of got translated into they don't want friendships or they don't seek friendships and I mean, I can only really speak from my experience, but I mean, I've worked with quite a number of, of young people in particular on the spectrum now, and I've not really come across anyone that at some point in their social development doesn't start to want friendships and connections. They often find them confusing, hard work, you know, they, they struggle with the, 
complexities of, of that relationship but they I mean lots of the young people I work with will literally verbalize that in a session that I want friends you know? yeah I mean so. yeah I totally agree you know I, I've been in these field for 17 years and, and it's the same I've never come across anyone on the spectrum who said to me oh, sorry I'm not interested about friends I think there's two differences and sometimes problems here is that you know our, our neurotypical brains are geared up to to create patterns mm. so then there's a lot of assumptions that our brains make in order to to reach that generalization and mm. i don't think it's exclusive to autism but you know this idea of you know women come from mars or, or venus and you know <laughs> or, or the idea of you know, women can't read maps and, mm. and what happens. It's like we find it easier to kind of lump people in exactly. one group. And, you know, that's probably true for some women, most women. I, I don't know the ratio of how many. Certainly it's true for me. I can't read a map even if I try. But I thought you meant how many, the ratio of how many were actually from Venus. From Venus, from yeah. Mars. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> maybe a, a second research. I can't a, read a map at all. No. I'm terrible. No. I get lost all the time. But that's a wonderful illustration of, you know, kind of being aware of sometimes these biases that we have and these assumptions that we make based on our unconscious need to create patterns. Mm. Um, and it happens, you know, across gender and ages and, and, and what have you. But that somehow would be translated at times negatively um, with people with autism and people will assume a lot of stuff like they don't want friends they, they don't like to be touched I mean I've come across so many different myths that people have mm. and I think it can be the same and say the same for any neurotypical person you mm. know kind of where the boundaries of you know social touch and proximity are it's different to every person mm. so I think you know kind of that need to generalize ideas is sometimes dangerous because it leads to biases mm. that are hard to change but also it, it is you know a, a question of you know looking at the specificity of what we're talking about mm. and, and, and taking every person as an individual and, and working with, with what, what they have and what they want. It's like somewhere along the line, and, and, and this, I, I don't know if this is maybe a... Because I mean, I've only been working in this field for probably 10 years um, and not that specific to autism, but it, it's something I talk about in, in general for young people who have behaviour support needs or challenging behaviours but it's like we've lost the idea of a spectrum it's like we've lost that idea that it should be person-centred and there was there's some approaches in particular in, 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 edu in certain education placements that it's it's kind of like it's a one-size-fits-all approach yeah. for especially for autism and I mean that the more people you meet with autism, the more you realise how wide a spectrum it is. Mm. And yes, there are similarities. Yes, there are things that you can look at as a, uh, I guess, a, t a targeted difficulty that is, you know, generally there. Um, but it, because it impacts development, you've got to sort of assess which level of development they're at that you need to support. Mm. Um, 
I mean, one thing that I've, I've sort of come across recently is, is that um, switch or that stage of development where a young person be- starts to become more and more self-aware and you know I've worked with parents for a number of years now where we've kind of gone through that stage where the young person didn't appear to be particularly aware of themselves in contrast to others and then they move forward through that and they start to become aware of the other people around them and the other relationships people have around them and that's usually where there's a difficulty of hang on you know I I want friends or I'm not the same as everyone else I want you know some young people will say I want to be normal, that kind of feeling, which is really difficult to for the parents to sort of come to terms with. Mm. Um, well, that sense of belonging, I think, is a struggle for any of us. Yeah, you know, yeah. that just uh, when you start viewing yourself as a kind of your own individual, your own entity, um, and you lose that those attachment figures in the sense of kind of not really thinking much of yourself as an individual but as part of a social group mm. you know family or friends I think that is a struggle for anybody but then you have someone that has difficulties belonging into a wider group and and then it's hard my, my experience my personal experience with that l- a level of self-awareness is that I, I've always seen it as a feedback loop mm. between your own self, the me and the us. So you always get the feedback about yourself, your behavior, your desires and your wants, you know, kind of probably very basic at the beginning, but you kind of get that feedback from from other people constantly. So it's just kind of that loop that never stops. So you kind of form that sense of yourself by what you think and and you see and what people tell you about yourself yeah. um and i think that when i see and think about autism and that feedback loop it seems to be a disjointed element to it mm-hmm. so that loop doesn't go round so i have found individuals that they're very aware of others mm-hmm. and and other people, but then they lack the awareness about themselves, that knowledge about themselves in a more kind of emotional way, away from what they're good at, mm. you know, which that's a, a small part of the sense of self. Um, or completely the opposite, um, individuals that they know themselves very well and what works for them, what doesn't, but then they fail to recognize and to understand that in other people. Mm. And I think it's because either the that intra-inter um, kind of engagement is broken, and mm. that's why they, they can only do a loop within themselves or a loop amongst other people, but not in between, mm. you know, themselves and other people. And, and in autism, that's not linear, is it? You can't, no. you can't predict that. I mean, that that really strikes home with a couple of individuals I'm working with at the moment, both about the same age, and one of whom the work at the moment is about helping him to read the emotions of others, read, you know, face, um, facial expressions and gestures and things like that, tones of voice. But he could, he could, if at any time you ask him, he could tell you how he feels. He he actually uses good descriptive language, emotional literary for himself. 
And then another young person who's, like I say, about the same age who could tell you what someone else is feeling and look at it, but he couldn't express how he feels at certain times and he's not really paying attention to it. It's just kind of happening to him. And it's it's that kind of person-centred approach that, I mean, that's that's what RDI or certainly your training and then and then RDI kind of stood out for me was that ability to sort of assess where someone's at and what they need next and then help them rather than just go, oh, you, you have autism, so you need X, Y, and Z for this. That visual... Yeah, yeah, that kind of compensation mm. thing. You will need this. I mean, um, you know, the, there was the, the whole... The, the, the Temple Grandin book Thinking in Pictures that mm. came out which was fantastic and I think she's really important in people understanding autism but then suddenly everyone thought that everyone with yeah. autism thought in pictures so everything's visual yeah. and I mean I've been in sessions with young people before and they've like told me off like why are you showing me bloody pictures Sam I can read and I'm like oh okay <laughs> so yeah. we can write this <laughs> yeah you know? I think I, I made the same mistake because at one point I, I was that kind of rigid in you know kind of thinking in almost cause effect or he's got a diagnosis therefore he needs ABOC mm. um, and it's interesting that you say that because one of the reasons why I research about social looks is for the exact same same reason that when uh, a lot of research started happening on social referencing and became mainstream um, then every single practitioner started using the term social referencing mm. for an, anything and everything. And, uh, and then you kind of start questioning, well, actually, social referencing in terms of looking behavior, it might be only one behavior amongst every other social look behavior. Mm. Um, and and you start questioning, you know, so what other behaviours are there, looking behaviours that we don't know? Mm. Because then it's so easy to simplify something as complex as looking, seeing, you know, orienting and, and, and all that, that I started questioning, you know, well, social referencing is, is just a very interesting term, mm. but surely it's not everything when it comes to looking. I think that brings us to a good um, point to get into your research because I'm all, mm. we, when we get together we could probably talk for hours yep. but people might not be able to listen for hours uh, <laughs> <laughs> although hopefully they will um, and so one of the reasons I wanted to get you in was yep. to get it's a bit of an exclusive, ladies and gentlemen. Sylvia's only really presented to one group about her sort of research and, mm -hmm. and findings. Um, but so to sort of segue into that a bit, uh, if I, because I think I've got a basic understanding of social referencing, which I've used in, in training for a while now, but you've recently been sort of prompting me on things and telling me to look at certain things that would make me think there's much more to it, which is what your research is about. But for those people that maybe are not that familiar with the term, if I give my understanding, and then you can tell me how wrong I am. Um, <laughs> so the, the way I look at social referencing is it's kind uh, I think you, initially I was looking at what we called instrumental social referencing, mm -hmm. where you're looking to someone to adjust your behavior. So say a young child goes to touch a hot radiator, they look at mum first, 
and mum go makes a sort of scared face or shakes her head, they pull their hand away. Um, usually by the age of two, they look at mum, mum shakes her head and they go ahead and do it anyway. That's the terrible twos, but they're learning to say no. But they look, that's the point, they check first. Yeah. So that was, and there, there's a, online you can look at the visual cliff experiment, yes. which shows that instrumental referencing. Mm-hmm. Then the, I think one of the times we spoke about it a while back, you introduced me to the idea of kind of emotional regulation. So you would reference someone and how they feel would it, would affect your feeling so you might be a young child who is playing with a toy and a, a parent or and another stranger enters the room they look at the stranger they look at mum mum appears okay so now they're okay yeah. that kind of thing mm-hmm. so those were two ideas but you've now gone in, into real detail with your research about social looking in general yes. so do you want to just sort of pick up there and tell tell mm-hmm. us what you're finding, what you've looked at and, and what, what it means. Yeah, I mean, sadly, I can't claim that um, my explanation about the different uh, types of social looks is something that I came up with, so I can't take credit. Because when I started wondering, well, social referencing will be one social look, and uh, let's see what is out there in terms of research and articles, literature. Mm. And... Um, I could only find one. So this type of similar research was done in 1986. Wow, that's quite a long time ago. It is a long time ago. It's three years years after I was born. Well, sadly, I was was born by then and talking, but um, yes, I wasn't aware of that research at the time. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yes, that's the one single research um, that tried to do that two things you know and, and it was just around the time that obviously the term social referencing became mainstream mm. and you know these authors uh, Clement and uh, MD and, and, and a bunch of, of them they started wondering two things one you know surely there's more looking behavior than only social referencing although useful and it's just been groundbreaking in order to understand emotional and and social development but also they recognize that most of the research within the social referencing paradigm has been done in the lab which you know you kind of control a lot of variables so then you elicit that social referencing now i have to say social referencing has always most of the time not always but you know 95 percent of the time has been done within the what is called the ambiguity postulate which means that you need to create situations of uncertainty in order to elicit that type of 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 looking so Mm. say for instance a a stranger comes into that room and that uncertainty about that person will increase that the child will look at the at the mum and the uncertainty about whether i can touch this or not will actually create or elicit that that looking to mum's face or in most of the research what they do is present a toy walking toy uh, that appears unexpectedly and then they measure the looking of the mum's face just so so this um, research in 1986 tried to not only 
understand what other looks their children display, but also when they're not done in the lab. So yeah. they wanted research to go into a direction of more field work, you know, kind of real life situations. But obviously it was never done before, so they kind of breached the gap by doing uh, just kind of semi, what is called semi-naturalistic um, um, research. So it wasn't quite, let's go to a nursery and see what happens, but it wasn't, let's go into the lab and then we'll introduce these, so then this happens, sort of, of, of thinking. Somewhere in the middle. Some, some, something in the middle. And uh, so then they created a whole different categories of social looks by, you know, kind of um, coding and categorizing. So they came up with eight mm -hmm. rather than social referencing. Although so social referencing was one of the looks that was, was there. Okay, so social referencing is just one of those eight of categories. Them, and yes. you used the same eight categories for your research. Right? Yeah, I started using them because to have a reference point, you know, like a framework. Otherwise, it's me creating categories, you know, and, and that wouldn't be very research-like, you know, so they, they wouldn't have the validity or the reliability that you need for, for research. So at least I was, I took something that it was already done, um, done probably not very well because even the authors highlighted some of the re reliability problems with their research but they were hoping that people will use that as a benchmark for and i don't think anyone did it what they've done other researchers is done very little research on social looks but they've taken a very broad definition based on that research but they haven't taken the different categories okay. so you had eight different categories. Can you tell us what yeah, they are? Yeah, rating from um, initiating joint attention, uh, no, initiating, that's one of my initiating um, mm -hmm. uh, social interaction. And then they divided these into two categories, a long initiation and a short initiation. So you had a kind of a, a, a time limit there. Mm -hmm. uh, gaze aversion was another one. Um, then they divided social referencing between um, the kind of the standard, what they call pre-social referencing, pre-action and post-action. So the pre-action would be before the child acts upon something, they will look, or the child does something and then looks. Just right. um, so psychologically it has different, different meanings. And then uh, watching others interact was, you know, uh, another one. Orient to a voice, uh, orient to an action, um, watching others communicate, that would be, would be another one. Mm -hmm. um, and watching others was another category. Um, so they, they just created these different categories. Um, and they did it with preterm, and they watched videotapes of, of, of children interacting in a kind of semi-lab. Um, mm. So I took those categories, and then I went into nurseries and um, targeted 12 to 14 months um, neurotypical infants um, just interacting on a normal day at the nursery and uh, and then I spend endless hours 
watching the the videos and and then matching you know those categories with what i was seeing so i would take a social look in terms of every time that child looked at the adult's face mm-hmm. um and then i would code that so you'd use the the eight categories and, and the context in which the look happened to see if you could define it and yeah. record how often it often it was happening or yeah yeah as as part of the data analysis I did not only explore okay what looks you know are these eight looks appropriate Mm. in normal environments uh, or, or or not but also then I started wondering well what is the most frequent look what is the look or looks that infants kind of display more in a natural setting because I think going back to social referencing that's the only look that has been studied mm. for so long that people assume that every look is social, social referencing mm. and it happens all the time and basically what I found so far is that it's not very frequent Why? Okay. yeah it's one of the lowest ratio mm looks that you see in infants that age and I studied 12 to 14 because that's the age where social referencing is completely established Mm. and also joint attention so you get this 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 too so I I rearranged some of the categories Uh, I got rid of the initiation of joint attention or initiation of social interaction I, I took out the short and long because I thought when you initiate attention, you interaction, it doesn't really matter. Mm. And with young kids, what I found is that they usually would initiate a look to initiate interaction with the adult, but they will miss the information that the adult wasn't available. Yeah. So they would go and try and look and try to give a toy to the adult and the adult might be changing a nappy mm. to someone else and not realising that he's doing that gesture and looking to initiate. And it doesn't matter whether it's a two second or, or, or a ten second initiation. I think it's valid to say that the child is trying to engage in some social yeah. interaction. Um, and then I added some as well okay. that um, you know kind of I thought they needed to, to be added uh, for instance I did then a second study and um, I added a category which is called initiation of social communication rather than social interaction because by the time because I, what I did is that I researched, went back to the same kiddies mm. that are from the, the, the first study three months later to uh, see yeah, how consistent developed. those social looks were. And I noticed that by the time they reach 15 months, 18 months, then the, the pointing gesture was so prevalent that they would initiate that not so much for interact or play with the adult but to share that experience with the adult right so they would point just because they wanted to share that information with yeah. them 
And I thought that that's that's too important to miss. Mm. That would be you know just over generalizing the idea of initiating something. So I thought you know there's a difference between interacting and communicating. So hang on. So they when you first observed them, they were pointing but to initiate play. Mm-hmm. So they would. They like, wouldn't point. Oh, they just no. Look. They would bring an object to the adult. Right. And that's the difference between twelve months old, you know, or thirteen or fourteen month old, and then seventeen month old babies. So then they would point to say, "Let's yeah. go and play that." Or what no, you, they just will. To share. They they will just point to share that you know kind of mutual experience, which that's joint attention. So it wasn't. You know, here I've got a ball. Let's so because that's start more playing. kind of instrumental, isn't it? Like yeah. here's something. Let's do something with it. Yes. Whereas they've then shifted to, there's something. What do you think about it? Yeah. Look, it would be more like you know an implicit look at that. Mm. So then the 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 um the adult will will look, but it, there wasn't any play involved. It was just that communication, that share experience. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the, the interesting things about you know the research so far is that the most prevalent look from twelve months old to forty months old is actually watching others. Okay. So just observing for no reason other than just to watch. Yes. That's yeah, that's really important, isn't it? Yes. It's so much experience of what other people do and why and yeah, and and you know I call that well n- not me the research as as a passive engagement. Yeah. So the child, you know, I I I've categorized three different type of watching. So it's watching the adult mm. perform an action, um, which that actually leads into understanding mental states and what have you. But it's basically when it would be when the the adult is is tidying up or putting some cups out because they're going to have a snack time at mm. nursery. And the child spends quite a lot of time watching the adult do that, perform this action. It actually makes a lot of sense because if you look at kids when they're a little bit older, say three, four, five, and they're in their play, it's often adult imitation, isn't yes. it? It's like, let's play houses, let's play mummy and daddy. Yeah. And like, where would they learn how to do that other than by observing people doing fairly menial things? And exactly. you know, every, every, well not every, but most young um, sort of infant girls want to have a baby doll, yeah. you know, and they would have seen mum doing that or maybe remember it in some way, I don't know, but. Yeah, yeah and, and you, you're exactly right that you know, I remember my, my little girl when she was 18 months that she had this pretend phone and she would mm. go around the house pretending that she was talking on the phone. Yeah. And, and I, we think about these moments are, you know, the cutest ones. But then you're right, is that where does she take taken that from? Yeah. And it's because she's probably observed me and 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 significant people in her life at the time talking on the phone mm. and that's reenacting something that you know she's observed mm. and i think when it comes to to autism i think it's going to be very interesting to see how much observing they do because that's how you move from what they're doing to why they're doing it mm. you know and going back to that aba 
there's comes a point and it's very early on in developing development where they start thinking well the teacher's putting the cups out because it's snack time and I'm going to get my drink so they interpret that behavior uh, as a, as an intentional one yes and they start making sense and making meaning of that mm. um so watching others is actually what they do most not social referencing mm. but actually just passively being part of and watching you know and if an adult comes in the room and they're engaged in play they will stop that play to look up and see what's happening mm. so they're already by the time they reach 12 months of age they already have this ability to disengage from something because they're aware of their surroundings so much that if they hear a door opening, they will look mm. and check. And my, I don't know this, but I would assume at this point that, and, and actually research has shown that children with autism fail to orient, you know, to people. Mm. And I'm wondering, in normal environments of a nursery, how many times that child will stop what he's doing, playing with that Lego or those cars, because he's aware that someone is coming or someone something is happening. Mm. Uh, so that's the next bit of your research, isn't it? Yeah. To, to try and um, observe, um, you want young people of the same age or young people of the same age yeah. With siblings on the spectrum. Yeah, I'm recruiting now for infants between twelve months and eighteen months, mm. um, and and yeah, with a sibling on the spectrum, uh, because they they are risk, you know, of, yeah. of being diagnosed, but um, also because by that age um, range, you still you know, don't get the diagnosis. No, so it's they, too early. You know, yeah. yeah, it's too early. But by the time they reach 18 or, or two years, they might start the process, some of them, of getting. So so I'm interested to see those infants at risk, whether there's differences in those looking patterns between them and the, the kids that I've already researched. Because there's another look and you know I'm, I'm not going to go over social looks because I'm aware that people are not as nerdy as I am <laughs> but one of the most second most prevalent look especially when they get older is a look that I, uh, that is called glancing right which that's a look that happens within a two second or less so wow. literally is the child so in terms of observing it it'd be very hard to even notice it if you unless yes. you're really looking for it exactly yeah. but you know we all do that mm. you know just glance quickly yeah. you know without even realizing and and I, I don't really know exactly what it means and to why because it's as far as i'm concerned there's no research done on mm. the importance of glancing but it's, it happens all the time mm. You know that that children will glance quickly, and my guess it would be that it's probably as a way of maintaining and monitoring 
surroundings. Mm. So whatever they glance at, you know, it's not significant enough to sustain that look, mm-hmm. but is important enough to make sure that, you know, what I'm doing or where I am, that, that is okay. Um, and it's habit, like I said, it's just two seconds of or, or less, mm-hmm. but it's one of the most prevalent looks. So I think as the kids go um, and develop, they don't need that level of information around from their surroundings, but they need more monitoring. Mm. It's like, yeah, okay, I'm maintaining this. So is it, are you talking about glancing at people or just anything? No, just glancing at people. at people. So my, my looks will only be coded if they look at, at and people's see. faces. Be interesting to see as well if there's any sort of difference in the amount of glancing they do towards people they know or have relationships with already. Because I can imagine that, like if you, you know, if you're in the office or the, the the people you get on with well, you're probably more likely to be sort of catching their eye. Maybe not to initiate anything, but I don't know. It's, yeah, there might be something in that. That's that'd be really interesting to hear. Yeah, me too. You know, I'm I'm still haven't figured out as to why they do glance more. Mm. Um, it does happen because that category is present when they twelve and when they fifteen, sixteen mm. seems to happen a bit more as they they grow older. Uh, but I don't know because in terms of frequency you know of that look is just almost you know so quick but it's still yeah it's there. yeah so mm. it's yeah it's happening for some yeah. reason i so. think that's that's fascinating like the idea that the, the one of the main differences could be and we're sort of assuming at the moment but it could be the literally the amount of time spent watching people and you know that because i'm you know you're i what i love about hearing some of the research that you're doing and also that you you send my way and tell me about and I always try and think about how is that going to inform practice and how what the work that that we do and it it makes me think of a a young lad that I'm working with at the moment he's a young man actually he's he's about 15 and he's got such a resistance to being corrected on any sort of social interaction which I can totally understand you know like what it's probably happened for so long that he's just kind of fed up with being told to assess his own behaviour. Um, and one of the things that mum's doing, his mum's doing with them, him now, is getting him to spend lots of time talking to her about the things other people do. So things in his class. So he'll come back and he'll say, oh mum, you'll never believe what so-and-so did in class. He, he shouted out this word and he was in so much trouble. I, don't, I think he's going to regret regret that. So he's got to this stage where he's now, she's encouraging him to, and he's now actively engaging in a lot of social watching and observing, and he finds that a lot easier than trying to assess his own behaviour. But he is making progress in terms of his own emotional awareness, his own behavioural awareness, and the effect of his behaviour on others. And it's it, again, I think that that idea that you know, it, it's like a language, isn't it? If you were gonna. <sighs> if you were gonna learn a language you'd spend time observing people speaking it you'd spend time listening to it you'd immerse yourself in it and and even without 
probably actively trying to learn it you'd absorb it and maybe that's part of or that is probably part of social development it's, it's happening around you and you're paying attention to it yes and you're soaking it up like a sponge yeah and there's no kind of constructed program to learn it yeah and so that's why when when we want to kind of readdress the balance we need approaches and, and things that give that kind of fluidity within a frame so it's not just prescriptive you know you can't teach someone the social rules because there are no real rules to socialization but you can you can give them the tools to assess what other people are doing and, and think about that in in that sort of feedback loop with themselves again absolutely and it is very safe because the observation and watching others happened without the child taking part yeah so it's that passive engagement that you still part of that social encounter without actively being involved in mm. so you don't have to shift the attention between what you're doing and what the other person is doing because that requires quite a lot of um, mental resources yeah, yeah but you can sit there and watch other kids and what they do is just watch the adult play with other kids or watch the adult sing a song and perform some some actions and and that's a very important way of learning about other people's intentions and also goes back to that argument of language versus communication and this idea of if any child develops language especially if you have autism and you are delayed in, in expressive language but then things will be okay because you'll be able to verbalize things but you know you these kids are, are learning about people about emotions about social cues and they're still non-verbal mm. because they have very, no language or very little language mm. but they still understand the meaning of social interactions mm. it's instinctive isn't it yeah, kind of, um, yeah. Mm. well i i think that kind of summarizes your research i'm, I'm not how long have you got by the way how i don't know what time it is no i have no idea yeah it's uh it's two o'clock. Mm. Um, so, like I said, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't. I'm... I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I can talk for hours, but um, I don't know any well, of the listeners, listeners that'll be that We might have lost them by now, but they can always <laughs> yeah. pause it and come back. And come back what yeah. I was thinking of, though, is because yeah. is we've kind of covered the research in, in lots of mm. depth. I w whilst you're here, I was wondering if we could kind of park this one and do another podcast that was a bit more quick just on I wanted to see if we could do some just sort of tips for parents and professionals supporting people with autism between yeah. us maybe just like a little one so if you've got time for that yeah. we'll park that one here so I hope you've enjoyed listening um if you need I mean Sylvia is it okay to give out details to contact you yes. about the research yes so what would you how would someone get hold of you if they either wanted to be part of it or yes. and what do you need exactly you well, need I, I I need children <laughs> right. That's all I need. Children. You need to be um, able to watch babies, which is you know. Yes, as long as you know they they meet the criteria, which is being between twelve and eighteen months, mm -hmm. 
and have a sibling with autism okay. or in the process of being diagnosed. And you need autism. to observe them in the nursery? Ideally, yes, but I might be able to change the conditions of us to where I do the videos okay. um, because some of them I can see that they might not be in nursery yet. Mm. Or But um, if you have those two requirements of the criteria, the age and the sibling with autism, then I would love to hear from you. Mm. And they can con contact me at my um, university email address, which is spanella, is S-P-A-N-E-L-L-A, at my.shu.ac.uk. So you had to spell that, because I don't know if yes. you've noticed, but Sylvia's Spanish, so, yes. you know. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. good, though, because it adds a bit of sort of, you know, uh, culture to the podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, 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 that diversity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I mean, I'd, uh, again, just from a personal point of view, professional point of view, I'd really encourage people to, to if, they, if they meet those criteria, to get in touch with Sylvia. I think it's a really important piece of work. You know, again, it's not about trying to cure or change anything. It's about trying to find ways to understand what happens and, and then we can look at things we can do to support individuals better I think um, certainly from a practice point of view that's how I see it anyway um, Sylvia thank you for coming and talking to me for so long thank you um, we knew that that would happen yeah, it does anyway whether, whether we're being recorded or not oh, no, so yes. you know even if no one's listening at least we had a nice conversation yes. <laughs> um, and I'm going to get I'm going to hold on to you for a little bit and we'll be um, just I think what we'll probably do is we'll do our th top three we'll limit ourselves to three each three tips for or tips or ideas for professionals and parents supporting individuals with autism mm -hmm. does that sound good yeah, yeah. That's, cool. that's great thanks very much thanks for listening everyone i always do this little bit at the end where i can't turn the mic off in time and i talk so i'm gonna make <laughs> i'm gonna make that a thing at the end of each podcast yeah but i'm not gonna swear so you know for those of you that you are still listening well. no swearing we're still actually on mic just so you know so and um, we are officially off now. <laughs>